while we are continuing this morning, looking at our series, Encountering the Living God. Many of us, I think, when we think of encountering God, begin with the image behind me. We think of sitting around in a circle or in a row and uh, waiting for God to join us in some way. God, uh, we, we of course want to think and believe in God as more than just uh, someone who we can't see, but often when we think of God, well, we're left with the image of an empty chair. That's not, however, the image that the Bible gives us. The pictures that the Bible gives us about what it means to encounter the living God are very different. Not only are they not uh, only not only are they communal when often we think individually, but also they are powerful and transformative. Sometimes in the short term, other times in a much longer and uh, over the over the course of a lifetime. We're gonna. Uh, consider what it is to encounter God in the context of other people, in the context of community, in the context of a spiritual family, the family of God, this morning. And in order to do that, I want to read first from a couple verses from the book of Hebrews, or rather the letter to the Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to read verses 32 through chapter 12, verse 3, and the words will be on the screen behind me, and you can follow along. The author of Hebrews goes and uh, has has quite a list going by this point we pick it up. And uh, that list includes any number of people in Israel's history. And then uh, the author continues and says this, What more shall I say? I don't have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samuel, or Samson, about Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised. They shut the mouths of lions. They quenched the fury of flames. They escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers, and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. Others, or they, were put to death by stoning. They were saved in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were commended for their faith. Yet none of them received yet what has been promised, since God had been planning something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out before us fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So far the reading of God's word. As I said, I want to talk this morning about spiritual family. 
By this I mean that people, I'm talking about people who are united by a deep love and by mutual submission to one another. This is only possible because God is with them and because God is perfect, a perfect spiritual family unto himself. The Bible reveals God over the course of many books and many generations as one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father loves and serves the Son. The Son loves and serves the Spirit. And the Spirit loves and serves the Father. There is one God and yet three distinct persons. A perfect community. This union is not a union like marriage, which is under the law. It's not a union of temporary feelings or even a physical union like sex. The union of God the three persons of God together and of God with his people is a different and deeper kind of love. A different and deeper kind of commitment and humility and even service. And this creation of a spiritual family was God's plan from the beginning. Out of the overflow of love and submission between the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, God created people to serve. Don't hear me say that God created people to serve him. God, first of all, created people so that he might serve and know and love us. And he invites us to return that love and that service. God put humanity in the garden to care for it and to serve others. He called Abraham in order to make him a blessing to all nations. But in our culture, in Western culture, which is to say individualistic culture, When we imagine encountering God, usually what we think of, well, we think of a very personal and profound moving experience, but just or mostly for me. In collectivist culture, when we think of a family or spiritual family, we might focus only on loving or serving our group and ignoring or deprioritizing others. And then altogether, all of us gathered here together, along with the author of the book of Hebrews, we might look at the biblical stories of God. God speaking to Noah to build a boat. The angel of God wrestling with Jacob. Moses growing up on the mountain to meet with God. Or even Rahab helping God's people rather than helping her own people. Maybe we resonate with one of the disciples in the New Testament or even with the Apostle Paul. But I'm going to join the author of Hebrews in saying, I don't have time to tell all the details about all of these stories. How Noah lived on a boat. He built with his three sons an extended family and yet saved many animals and all humanity. How Jacob had many children, even one who served the Egyptians, Israel's enemy. How Moses came down from the mountain and lived among the Israelites. But Moses and the Israelites were judged and punished for their selfishness. How Rahab, a foreigner, was not only adopted into God's people, but also served them all her life and became an ancestor of Jesus. How Jesus called not just one, but twelve disciples to serve all people. And how the Apostle Paul went on his missionary journeys, but never alone. In every story in the Bible, we can see how God invites his people to see higher or further or differently 
We can see how God invites his people to look beyond our preferences, beyond our expectations, and encounter God as one part of God's big family from every tribe and nation and people and language. And when we look at all these stories, we can also see how everyone in this big spiritual family is called to God's mission and to God's purpose to unite God and all people together by mutual submission, by deep love, and by service to others. When we do what we normally do in a worship service on Sunday, which is to say when we read one small piece of the Bible at a time, it's danger, or it's, 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 the danger is that we miss broad trends and big pictures that God wants to show us. We miss the forest for the trees, we might say. The danger is that we miss pieces of how all of these different stories in the Bible are connected into a much bigger whole. And when we look at the whole, we see that God is always inviting his people to encounter him alongside of other people. Because God is always drawing all people together to experience him. But God does not only invite us to encounter him as individuals, God draws us to himself so that we might encounter him and experience him alongside others. Each of us as one part of our diverse spiritual family. I've said before that the glory and the love of God is too much for us to take in at one place or one time. That's why we, when we open up the Bible, when we have a sermon on Sunday, we usually pick a smaller part or smaller piece. But just like the author of Hebrews does in this text, instead of focusing on one text this morning, I want to explore several characters in the Bible. uh, Along with that, I want to show their broader impact in God's mission, in God's kingdom, God's world, and how they didn't just focus on one person or on one group. If you are following along with the sermon manuscript, Uh, on your phone, or or if you read it earlier, then you'll see that there's a number of Scripture references in here all over. My my sermon manuscript this week is dotted with all kinds of Bible references. I'm not going to mention those or call those to mind during the sermon, but I'm going to invite you and uh, expect that at at the right time, you can open up your Bible for yourself and test the truth of this to see if I'm just telling stories or if this really is what the Bible says. So this morning we're going to continue only two exam- or we're going to consider only two examples. The example of Jesus and his disciples and also the example of the apostle Paul. So, uh, two examples of how among many more examples of how God encounters us in community. Jesus walks alongside the shore of the Sea of Galilee and he calls his first disciples to follow him. He calls Peter and Andrew, he calls James and John first among those disciples. And then the gospel writers tell us that Jesus goes to Capernaum, and not just he goes, doesn't just go to town, but he goes to Peter and Andrew's house, to their mother's house, and he heals Peter's mother-in-law who's sick. And then suddenly the whole town has gathered in and around their home. A few days later, Mark tells us that Jesus had come home that his new home was now with Peter and Andrew and with their mother-in-law. Once Jesus had established his 
new home with these four guys and with Peter's mother-in-law and a few others, then the gospel writers tell us that Jesus gathered many other people to follow him. He designated 12 to be the disciples or apostles, the original four and then eight more. But this new group was not a biological family, it was a spiritual family. And it's so important, this spiritual family is so important, that in the very next verse, after Jesus does all of this, Jesus asks the crowd, who is my family? He says, who's my mother? Who are my brothers? Then he looks at those seated in the circle around him and he says, here are my mother and my sister and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my mother, my brother, and my sister. Of course, Jesus says as well that God, and only God, is his Father. And so this is the beginning of a new spiritual family that Jesus is creating. A group of people, a few are biological family, there's a few sets of brothers in there, but all have God as their Father, and all have Jesus as their brother. Moreover, when Jesus does his miracles, the disciples are there watching. When Jesus, does, uh, when, de- when Jesus teaches, his disciples are there listening. The gospel writers tell us time and time again that crowds gathered. But if you read the gospels, Jesus rarely addresses the crowds. He always addresses his disciples. Jesus doesn't do it all by himself. The crowds who gather or sometimes gather or, or sometimes don't gather, they're certainly welcome to listen. But Jesus' attention is on his disciples, on his spiritual family. He travels with them. He rests with them. They have fun together. They have times of serious discussion and prayer. He is always with them. These people do not experience Jesus alone, but as a part of a community. Let me give just one small example that might surprise us. At one point in Jesus' ministry, Jesus sails across the lake and heals a man who has many demons. This man lived in tombs outside of society, far from anyone else. When we read the story, we might mistakenly think that only Jesus and the man are in the story because they're the only people who are listed, who say or do anything. But some of Jesus' disciples, you probably know, were fishermen they would have had to pilot the boat across the lake. And how can we know this story today except that other disciples were there as well, experiencing Jesus' words and actions, remembering them, writing them down for later. At another point in his ministry, Jesus sends out his disciples to do what he has been doing, to say what he has been saying. He sends out the 12 disciples. And then later, the gospel writers tell us that he sends out 72 others to do exactly the same thing. These 72 are not just a random number. It's six people or three pairs of people for each disciple who went out the last time. Luke is intentionally trying to show us the multiplying power of Jesus' love for his disciples, but also his love through his disciples for other people. 
This is reiterated in Jesus' famous words at the end of Matthew's gospel when he says, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always. Jesus was always creating a community of people bound together by love, by humility, and by service. Love, humility, and service to one another and also to God. These aren't just the first disciples that Jesus sent out. This is Jesus' design for what was later called the church and Christians. We'll talk about that in just a minute. I was sharing with a friend this week how the church is the only organization in our world that is designed to exist for the blessing, for the benefit, and for the love of others. Think about it. If you watch uh, commercials or you engage with the world around you, then you know that many people and many organizations will say and claim that they are there helping you, or they're doing good in the world, and many of them are doing good. But banks and governments, even schools, every institution or organization you can think of in so many ways exists for its own sake and for its own growth. Even families sometimes may exist to use their kids to make a name for themselves or for their own growth. Or families might try to succeed in order to make themselves look better than a different family. Now please hear me. I'm not wanting to say anything bad, certainly not about families, nor about banks or governments or schools. Instead, we must recognize that apart from God, every good thing has a tendency to turn back in on itself. Every good thing apart from God has a tendency to turn back in on itself, to become self-serving. And so the church God's people called out from the world face that same temptation, just as anyone and anything else in our world. But God's solution to this problem of people and His creation turning back in to serve itself, God's solution is not, first of all, biological family. God's solution is, first of all, spiritual family. People who are united by a deep love and by mutual submission that goes beyond biology. The union of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the union of God with His people is so much, goes so much higher and further and deeper than biological union. But Jesus' church, His disciples, both His first disciples and His disciples today, are to be gathered, with, gathered from every nation and gathered with every nation for the purpose not to serve themselves or ourselves, but to love and serve anyone and everyone around us. We learn this perfect love from our Father, from Jesus the Son, and from the Holy Spirit, but also from the perfect, humble, and self-giving love of Jesus that we see in his disciples, or that we see in Jesus given to his disciples. So if you want to really encounter God, join his disciples. You don't have to go back in time to try and connect with Peter or Andrew or James and John. Jesus' disciples are still here today in this room, 
gathered around the world. And this isn't a new invitation. This invitation is given and, and as people have gathered ever since Jesus, ever, ever since that passage I quoted in Matthew 28, at Jesus' ascension. This is the invitation that the Apostle Paul received before he encountered God. He was working against Jesus' disciples. But after he met God for the first time, he gave up everything in order to encounter God again and know God and know God's people more fully. The first half of the Acts of the Apostles shows us how Jesus' disciples were already doing what Jesus modeled for them. They were already gathering together in the power of God. They were already spending days and weeks together. And God was already doing powerful things among them, through them, to others. Then Luke tells us that the church in Jerusalem, where Jesus' disciples were, that they sent Barnabas to Antioch, a city that was a couple days away. When Barnabas arrived in Antioch and saw what the grace of God had done there, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to God with all their hearts. Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. And then what happens? Barnabas realizes that, Bar- that he needs to follow Jesus' example. So Acts tells us, Barnabas then went to Tarsus to look for Saul, who was also called Paul. And when he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. And so for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught a great number of people. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Luke wants us to be sure that we see the connection between the way of Jesus gathering people around him and the way of Christians who are following Jesus. Barnabas doesn't work in isolation. He doesn't work alone. He finds someone, Paul or Saul, to join him, to learn from him, to work alongside him. Barnabas understood that the teaching and the example of Jesus were inseparable. That what Jesus said and what Jesus, how Jesus did it had to go together. And it's true for us too. We encounter God with other people who have the same heart. We continue to encounter God when we are part of a spiritual family. People who are united by the same deep love, by mutual submission, and by service to others. And brothers and sisters, I'm talking about more than just gathering together for worship on a Sunday. That is so important. As I was preparing for worship service, I had a short prayer and conversation with Cor right before the service, and he said, brother, we're going to pack this place soon. And I said, amen. But this place will be packed not when we do the right amount of advertising, not when we uh, just try and pressure or guilt people to say, hey, what are you doing on Sunday? This place will be packed when we follow the way of Jesus. When we are busy being united with others in deep love, submitting to them and serving them out of love and care for them. As our hearts and the shape of our lives are changed by the words of Jesus, but also by the way of Jesus, then others' lives will be changed as well. They will want to encounter God 
just as we want to encounter God. And so then they will want to be here and to be with us. Barnabas is so convinced that we must encounter God alongside other people that on on a second trip, his second trip with Paul, Barnabas wants to bring somebody along. He wants to bring his cousin, John Mark. But Paul doesn't trust John Mark. So they part ways. John Mark uh, goes with Barnabas and they go north and Paul goes with Silas. But Paul still follows Barnabas' example. Paul still follows Jesus' example. As he travels with Silas, Paul first, they come to the first Roman city, which is Lystra. And what happens? They invite Timothy to join them. Then in Troas, which is a little further on, uh, on the Aegean coast, Luke joins their little group. Then in Philippi, they're joined by Lydia, who's a businesswoman. And although Lydia doesn't travel with them, it's clear that she becomes a part of their little group, their spiritual family as well. After Paul and Silas get out of prison, they go to her house and she cares for them until they're well again. In Corinth, further down the coast, Paul meets Priscilla and Aquila. He stays with them for several months. And when Paul leaves to go to Ephesus, they go with him. Paul says that he intends to return to Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus. And a couple years later, he does. He comes back and visits them. And he spends a year or two more with them there. When things in Paul's third missionary missionary journey go badly in, in Ephesus during those few years there, Luke tells us that at that time... As, he's, as things are going badly, he was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, by Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, by Gaius from Derby, by Timothy also, and Tychius and Trophimus from the province of Asia as well. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas, Luke says. And Luke says, it's important to note that they waited for us, which means that Luke was there too. We don't know, of course, the details of all of these people. We don't know who, all of they, who each of them or all of them were or what each of them or all of them did. But one thing is clear. Wherever Paul went, whatever Paul did, Paul was always encountering God with more and more people. And Paul, like Barnabas, like Jesus, was always challenging those people to love and serve others both those who are part of the group and those, out, um, those among them and those outside as well. So I want to make a bold statement and challenge you to test it in your own life. People who encounter God, people who encounter God powerfully and continually, people who encounter God are always intentionally a part of a spiritual family. They're always a part of a group of people who are united by deep love, by mutual submission, and by service to others. If you want to encounter God, you need to get in relationship with some people who are, who are doing those things, who are united by deep love, who are united by mutual submission, who are united by service to others. I didn't plan to say this. I didn't write it down. Pastor Harrison and I have laughed over, together over the last number of weeks and months at how little he and I have in common. 
We have different interests. We are different generations, part of different ethnic groups. We've lived in different places. And yet, over just two years, God has given us a deep love and respect and service for one another that doesn't make sense apart from encountering God in and through one another and encountering God as we serve the people around us here at River Park and the people in our community beyond that. People who want to encounter God powerfully and continually are always a part of an active spiritual family. Some of us may and do prioritize only our own biological family or our own group. Others of us may focus on our own personal lives and our own personal responsibilities. And still, God is gracious. God chooses to meet with us or may choose to meet with us in any or every of those situations. Even if we live ourselves, our faith privately and outside of connection with other people, God still meets us. Even when we focus our energy on our biological family and we have no other energy left, God still encounters us. But this is not the model. These are not the model that we have received or the model that we are invited to follow. Jesus picks 12 disciples, including a couple pairs of brothers. And if you look at the list of people above, people that Paul worked with and traveled with, you get 13 people, including some relatives. As I said, John Mark is Barnabas' cousin, and Priscilla and Aquila are married. I'm not going to tell you that 12 or 13 is some magical number, but I do want to suggest two things before we close, and I'll leave them up there on the screen. First, uh, encountering God alongside other people that you might have a deep relationship with does have a maximum number to it. People are limited. It is not possible for you or for me or for any of us to share ourselves fully and deeply with a hundred people. It's not even possible to share ourselves fully and deeply with maybe 50 people. Even if someday, imagine for a moment, that you were to write a book, an autobiography, and you, you list your, you, you go through your life, you write down everything you ever did, or at least if you're a better storyteller than me, you write down the important parts, and you focus your energy and time on the important parts. Even if you do that and your book sells thousands of copies, those people will not know you. They will simply know many things about you. And what's more, you will not know them. You won't know who picks up your book in a random bookstore on a Tuesday. In the same way, we don't know the Apostle Paul personally, even though we know many details about him and about his life. And he doesn't know us. We are not invited to know every single person that we come into contact with deeply and intimately. We have a maximum number of people that we can share ourselves with because people, each of you and all of us, are more than just the sum of the details or information about us. As people, we're always dynamic. We're always changing. Some days are good. Some days are difficult. We grow. We're influenced by the people around us. To be sure, it's good to gather together as hundreds of people and worship God And one of the reasons it's so good 
is because God is not limited as we are. Another reason it's so good is because when we gather together as a larger group like this, we also gather as people who within a larger group do have those deep and meaningful connections. Jesus reminds us to love God with all our hearts and to love our neighbors as ourselves. The love of God, as I said, is unlimited. But the love that each of us needs and the love that each of us can give is personal and specific. If we want to love others as we want to be loved ourselves, we need to focus our energy and focus our love. The second thing and the last thing is that spiritual family is always a biology, biological family plus more. As I shared in those examples above, the examples of Jesus and Paul and Barnabas too, both, all, all three of these people gathered a spiritual family together that was a bit of a mix. There were biological family and relations in there and also intentionally people who weren't. This is because our biological families, as good as they are, cannot meet all of our needs. If we look to a spouse or to a parent or to a loved one for everything we need, not only will we be disappointed, we will also hurt that other person sooner or later. Biological family will always be valued in eternity. But Jesus reminds us, and again in more ways than I have time for today, that all people are invited into a family commitment and a love that is deeper than biological family ties. We do not need to exclude the family that we have, but the circle of love, of God's love, is broader and deeper than biology. It's a love that extends even into eternity. It's the only love that truly lasts forever. Christians believe with faith that when we read these stories and examples in Scripture, that we can trust them as models and examples of God's Word and God's work among His people. Because we want to be more like Christ personally and more like God communally, we want to invest in something that lasts. I could start another sermon here, and I'm not going to. So don't worry. But I do want to end with this, that there is a great opportunity here among younger generations in our world because people like myself and a number of, in, in my general generation and age and also many younger people, we want to do something that is bigger than ourselves. We want to serve a purpose that is bigger than just ourselves. This is the opportunity that God has given His church today. Not to be a group of people who are about building a name for ourselves or serving ourselves or doing good for others so that it benefits us. That's the way of the banks and the politicians and the government. That's the way of all people who, even if they are good, apart from God, turn back in on themselves. The opportunity that God has given His church is to be who He's called us to be, who we've always been supposed to be. People who are united by deep love, by mutual submission, and by loving service to others, not to ourselves. 
We learned this way from God, and we will encounter him when we follow it. So please join me in a word of prayer as we bring all this to God together. God, thank you. Thank you for this big story that you painted with broad brushes and that at many times and through many of the characters and the people in this story, you also show us specific and powerful details of your love, your power, your glory, and your work among us. It's easy for us, Lord, to see with broad strokes the way that you work in the world among us. Or maybe if it's not easy, it's easier than seeing the minutiae, the details of how you work in our own lives, how you meet us in the midst of our joy and sorrow, our sadness and brokenness, our celebration, our exhaustion. But God, we pray that as we have seen just a few examples this morning of how your people encounter you in deep and meaningful relationship with others, we pray that you would give us the wisdom and faith and trust to step out, to follow the examples that you have given us, to see if you will bless us and be present with us in the same way that you blessed powerfully and with your presence, those who have gone before us. So God, give us faith and confidence where we need it. Meet us in our grief, in our sadness. Bring us people to sit with us in our sorrow so that we might be a family with them and in those difficult times too. And always, God, continue to lead each of us and all of us together as River Park Church and as your people, uh, the church that is part of your big church here in Calgary and all around the world. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We've got one more song before we close. Uh, Usually we have two. But at this time, uh, I'm going to invite you to stand one more time and uh, offer you God's parting blessing. We're going to sing God's blessing to one another. Uh, But before that, I want to encourage you, invite you to receive it. Uh, This is God's blessing to his people in the Old Testament. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face, his favor, and his glory toward you and give you his peace. And all God's people say, Amen.